0: This morning, and I do pray that God will bless us. This morning, as we look at His word and uh, spend some time thinking about it together, be assured there is a clock in my line of vision, so you need not be afraid, I hope. I uh, want to talk about a subject that maybe people presume gets talked about a lot in church, but I'm not so sure it does. I'm not so sure it gets talked about amongst Christians. And I don't know you, and I don't know this morning whether you're a believer or whether you're interested in Jesus and in the gospel, Um, but I want to talk about sin, what the Bible calls sin, or what you may call badness, what you may interpret as problem, the stuff that causes heartache, whatever. There are all kinds of ways in which uh, we do experience and talk about this. And that's what I want to say just by way of introduction. Is I think that even this morning, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you wouldn't say that there is a God, maybe there is, you don't know. I think everybody believes in sin. We all do, we experience the effects of it. It breaks our hearts, we break other people's hearts. And we maybe call it by different things, but I think we all believe in sin. Now, I uh, have an illustration of that by way of introduction again. I was in a book group a little while ago with a different bunch of friends. Some of them were believers in Jesus, and some of them were not. So that made for very fascinating conversations. And one of the books that we read was called We Need to Talk About Kevin, made into a film a few years ago. You might have read it or seen the film. It's quite hard hitting because it's about, it's written from the point of view of a mother reflecting on her. Life, bringing up her son, who became, in American context, a mass shooter. So there's an example of big sin. Everybody would agree with that, wouldn't they? That that boy, that man, had a problem. That mother had a problem to process. Of course she did. The horror, the horror of what he did and of what people experienced. But as I was, uh, I read. A review of the book again recently just because I was thinking about it. And what I often do when I look at things like this is I look at the comments underneath. I'm fascinated by how people respond to books and reviews and everything like this. And here's one that I just want to share with you. I'm actually going to read a little bit of the comment because I think it illustrates my point that people see sin, they feel it, they interact with it, and they perpetrate it, but they don't always know what to do with it. This lady, in a very reasonable way, says this, she says that the author, Lionel Shriver, raises questions about responsibility, about parenting, about good and evil, and makes the readers feel that there are answers, but we're just not getting them. She says, the reviewer, I read the book every couple of years. I don't get any closer. Sometimes I identify with the mother. Always I'm meditated by the father. Never do I find the linchpin where disaster could have been averted. Could the mother have done something differently to stop the son becoming who he became? Is he and are we purely the product of our environment, the circumstances that surround us and sometimes overwhelm us? Or is it also to do with our own personal responsibility? And she concludes, at the first reading I was teaching disturbed and disturbing adolescents. Now I have a difficult teenage son. And she says there has to be a linchpin, doesn't there? There has to be something that's going on there in the human condition. Is it just random the way that we end up behaving the way that we do? Even rational people like ourselves, should we call ourselves rational people this morning, who know what we should do and shouldn't do, at times find ourselves doing what we know we shouldn't do. And if you read the Bible in the book of Romans, you'll find the Apostle Paul sympathizing with that very much. So I think we have a situation that everybody faces, whether we like to or not. And so the book is called We Need to Talk About Kevin, and I think we need to talk about sin. What I'm going to look at this morning is both of the passages that we read, but primarily basing this out of Genesis chapter 3. And I want to look at the diagnosis that the Bible gives us and the diagnosis that maybe our society gives us. And then I want to look at the remedy that the Bible gives us, because there is one, and you have to know it. So the diagnosis, first of all, I think dysfunctionally in our society, and then the diagnosis that the Bible gives. One of the problems we face when we face threats is misdiagnosing the threat, Now, that's plainly obvious in our current circumstances. We all are aware of the potential threat from the coronavirus. Uh, The key thing with that is to have the right information and to respond appropriately. What the government and medical people don't want at the moment is for, on the one hand, complete complacency and, on the other hand, mass panic. That won't help. We might feel inclined to do either of them. You maybe find yourself somewhere in between. But either polarization won't help at all, will it? So when we are faced with different threats, we need an accurate diagnosis and we need to respond appropriately. I think the same is true in terms of behavior, right and wrong. I think if we misdiagnose the potential threat of what's wrong with our condition, namely sin, as the Bible says, that means we're actually in serious danger. So sin isn't something we can just kind of shrug off. You might feel like doing that this morning. I advise you not to do so. Here's why. Let me give you another illustration, again, from our society. i got a number of American friends. They like American football. They talk to me about it, and I kind of nod like I know what they're talking about, because I don't really. But there were quite a number of them, and a number of my American friends on Facebook particularly were commenting on the Super Bowl that just happened a month ago or whatever. And what they were mostly upset about, and they were upset, was the advert break. Because if you don't know, in the Super Bowl, where of course there's an advert break, there's also a performance from some musical genius or other. And this year, there was a musical performance from two very well-known, very famous, very well-regarded female pop singers, okay? And the, the response to that performance was very interesting. A lot of people praised them. Here were two examples of strong women who are great performers, who had worked hard and they got to the top of their game. People celebrated for who they were. Fair enough. They're very, uh, very professional, no doubt, and they're very talented in their own way. But many people were absolutely outraged, and not just outraged, they were dismayed by their performance because their performance wasn't just them singing. Their performance was them singing, wearing very little, effectively pole dancing. Now, forgive me for mentioning that, but do you feel comfortable with that? In a family sporting environment where families were watching? Again, how do we process that? Is that that neutral? Would you be happy sitting there with your 10-year-old watching that? And the thing, actually, that made it worse for some of my friends, and uh, again, when I saw it, was that in the second half of the show, who joined these women on stage but 10-year-old children to perform the last act? Now, the second act, I should say, was a bit more tame. But nevertheless, there were kids in their performance. And the whole thing caused a great uproar. And the point is that people don't know necessarily how to respond. Is this okay? Should we be outraged by this? The kids weren't actually in the worst part of the performance, so they weren't really affected by it, were they? When we move away, I believe, from the biblical clarity of how God would have us live, and I admit the Bible doesn't talk about Super Bowl halftime shows, but it definitely gives us principles for how we should live and how we should care for our children, when we move away from that clarity, then we enter a gray area that we're alone in. We have to, by our own determination, reason our way forward. And I'm not sure that we're always capable of making good decisions in that area, in that gray zone, where it's just up to us. I think you see that, no doubt. You feel it in the conversations that you enter into. All the time nowadays, if we take God out of the equation, And if we ourselves enter in and say we are sufficient to determine the rights and wrongs that will be uh, followed in our society, then we get ourselves into all kinds of problems and we end up with a pretty dysfunctional situation. There's one example, as I see it, in our society of things going badly wrong. And what I want to show you just now from Genesis chapter 3 is the biblical diagnosis. Because what the Bible gives us very clearly is a demonstration of the root cause of sin. And the root cause of sin, I will say, in every single person's heart. And this becomes important, and I hope you'll see how it becomes important the more we go on this morning. Genesis chapter 3, if you have the Bible with me just now, please open at that page. And what we find in this particular book, uh, chapter, I'm not, obviously we didn't even read the whole chapter, and I'm going to do a bit of summarizing here, but God has instituted a beautiful, a wonderful society with our human ancestors, our human parents right at the heart of it, enjoying beautiful creation with an incredibly intense and wonderful and personal relationship with God. All was good, all was good. In this garden. All was good in this relationship. But God did say to these people, our human parents, enjoy it. Be blessed. I will speak with you. You will know a wonderful relationship, but there is one thing that I do not want you to do. And if you know anything about Genesis, and if you know anything even about Christianity, you probably know what I'm talking about. God gave them one prohibition and said, do not eat that fruit. Now, Again, I don't know you. Do you think that's because God is a spoil sport? Was it random? Did God just decide, you know, they can enjoy everything but not that tree just because? No, I don't think so at all. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way at all. But in the biblical picture, what we have there is a delineation of God saying to the people, Adam, Eve, this will remind you of who you are and of who I am. I, God, the maker of this wonderful creation that you are in, I say to you, do not eat. It reminds you that I am God, that I will say to you what is good for you. I know I am God. I made you and I love you. And here is what I want you to do and here is what I do not want you to do. It gave them the boundary, the revealed to them constantly as they looked at it, God says we shall not do. And in that relationship was healthiness. There was the good boundary there between created and the creator God. And there was also the knowledge of good and evil. And here's the thing. Back in the passage, if I can take you to chapter 3 and verse 5, Adam and Eve are tempted to disobey God. And you know what it is that the tempter says to them will happen? The tempter says, did God really say that? Really? Do you really believe God? Do you see the way he sowed the seeds of doubt? Mistrust. You know what it feels to feel that. That sense of, can I trust this person? That had never existed before until the tempter came and tempted Adam and Eve. But look at what he says in verse 5. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. You see what he's doing? He's trying to get them to do to cross the boundary that was there that God had deliberately put that he was God and they were not, that they were his created beings, who he loved and who he would guide all their lives, but they were not to transgress the boundary that he had given them. And the tempter comes along and says, nah, just forget that, you'll be fine. It'll be good for you. And of course, what he didn't tell them, that as soon as they did that, their immediate experience would be guilt because they'd done what nobody'd done before, They'd been deceptive and deceitful and they'd gone against what somebody else had told them not to do who did have authority over them and they felt shame. So the knowledge of good and evil that was promised to them became bitter. It hurt them. They knew it. As you read the passage, you see what they try and do. They feel shame. They cover themselves. They try and cover themselves with clothes made out of plants. So the Bible here in in this story gives us the root, the first instance. Now, again, I don't know you. I don't know if you're a Christian. I don't know what you think about this, but I would ask you to consider this very strongly because it reflects the reality, the root reality in every human heart. What goes on here is what we find ourselves doing and what we find other people doing to us. In Romans chapter 5, the passage that we read earlier. Let me just turn there and read to you what Paul, the great apostle, says in Romans chapter 5. He makes the link. He makes the link that I really want you to consider this morning, which is that as sin was perpetrated by these people and entered into their experience, so it does in the heart of every person who has come after them including me and you. Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. That's the biblical diagnosis of the problem of sin. And what that means is it's important. It's real. It means that God tells us about our situation doesn't leave us guessing, doesn't say, you guys try and make it up and see how you get on. See how you feel about things. See what works. He tells us that there's a problem in our hearts. And what we see there very clearly is the ruin of sin. And that's why we shouldn't take it lightly. That's why we shouldn't not care about it. So here's my question just to finish this section. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to ask you how you think you will make sense of things. How does it work for you? Do you think you have a problem? Do you, where you experience the way that other people behave towards you, where they lie to you, where they make you feel ostracized, where they cheat you, where you cheat them? Do we just need fine-tuning Will we get better? Will we just keep working it out and getting better? I don't see that happening. What is your answer to that just now? I would like you to think about that just now and to be able to answer that. Because I don't think we can reason our way to a solution that works. God reveals to us very clearly here the root of sin in the human condition. But he also reveals to us a remedy. That's really important. And it's really, really important for us all to know and take hold of this morning because many people in our society, maybe you this morning, think that the Bible will stop there. And it's just about proclaiming bad news, telling people that they're rubbish. It's just about Christians thinking they're better than people and actually making it all about just moral performance. And that there's no hope. God is just a figure who's distant and a bit uncaring and who slams us any chance he gets That is not the full biblical picture, not even within this chapter, not even within this chapter. We're going to go on in Genesis chapter 3 now and see the way that the wonderful remedy of the Savior God applies to us. But first, let me just pick up again something I see a trend, if you like, in society, a dysfunction again in the way that we try and fix our problem of sin. One of the most dangerous ways, if left to ourselves, we can try and just fix sin is to externalize it. And what I mean by that is just to push it away. Push it away. Just keep saying it's somebody else. Those guys. Those guys over there. Not me. I maybe made a few mistakes, but not really. Those guys. Like the guy in We Need to Talk About Kevin. The really serious sinners, you know? We need to deal with them. Of course we do. We know we do. As a society, we still have legal procedures because we have to. But I'm not really involved And I think one of the most sinister places we see this at times is in the media. So, again, just by way of illustration. We see it particularly in the world of social media, where it's very easy to sit at home and pronounce on all the other people around me that I feel are terribly offensive and do all the very bad things, and they're just plain irritating. It's very easy. But even in our traditional media, in some of the papers... You may well know the example, the very, very sad and really tragic example recently where a woman, a television presenter called Caroline Flack, killed herself. In many ways, because of her own experience of guilt, but also in terms of the way she was held out as a really, really bad person. As the, she was the problem. And it became so easy for those in our media to look at her, somebody who may well have done wrong, She herself was on trial. But who would devote inches and inches of columns and papers to pulling apart her life and proclaiming how bad she was and the amount of people who would write blog posts about her and who would troll her online, constantly telling her how evil she was. Again, she may well have done wrong. But all she heard and all she became consumed with was her problem, which was real. And she had no way to deal with that. And it was tragic. It's tragic. And she's not the only example, is it? But isn't it terrible when what our solution to badness or sin is, is just for people to start externalizing it and saying it's other people. Other people are the problem. So in our media, and I'm all for investigative journalism. I'm all for holding people accountable. There are many good things done by media. I'm not saying that at all. But where our media victimizes people and simply holds them out, and flays them alive, and where social media simply permits people to be trolled and mercilessly character assassinated. There's no good there. She didn't have a good solution. I read one one more final thing. A co-presenter of hers told, tragically, that when they used to present the TV show together in the advert break, she would flip open her phone and start reading the online comments about her. And isn't that tragic? Because what that says, that as well as the sense of her own internal problems and her guilt and whatever else was going on, she was also compulsively attached to other people's opinions of her. Society judging her. And it told her over and over and over again, you are the problem. You are the problem. You are the problem. And so she felt shame and despair, shame and despair, shame and despair. What does the Bible say we should do with our sin? What does God say, the holy God who made us and who knows us? Well, it says, first of all, that God will expose sin. It doesn't say God says It's fine. You're fine. I'll just pretend it didn't happen. Or, you know, you're really not so bad after all. That's not what God did in this passage. Adam and Eve, after they had sinned against God, felt great shame. You know, the tragedy of it is that when God came to the garden, what did they do? They hid from Him. That had never happened before. They had a wonderful relationship with God, and here they are hiding from Him because they can't bear to look Him in the eyes, as it were. So the relationship is tarnished and broken, and God does come to them. And the passage that we read, the full passage from uh, verse 14 onwards, is God cutting right to the heart of the issue and dealing with it. And because he is God, and he has the right to judge, and he also has the morally perfect vision to make the right discernment, he makes appropriate judgment. So he says, verse 14, to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. He says uh, to the woman, verse 16, to the woman, and he gives his judgment on her. To Adam in verse 17, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree. God holds them accountable. So he says to people, face up to who you are. Look within your heart. Be real with yourself. Don't try and pretend there's nothing going on there. Don't try and say it's just everybody else's fault because that's not honest. If you look at yourself, it's just not honest. It won't satisfy you either because it's just not real. But then he does something absolutely astonishing. You remember that Adam and Eve's reaction had been to make for themselves garments of plants to try and cover their shame, because in their new state, which had been promised to them by the tempter, which would enlighten them to good and evil, they'd actually realized how awful it was to know evil and to feel shame. I want to take you down... Verse 20 and 21. Because in verse 20, we get hope. Even after the judgments of God, we read that Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Now, wasn't the penalty for sin death? And yet, here is life. Eve is to become the mother of all living. God, in his grace, permitted life to carry on because he had a plan to deal with the mess that had just been made. Because look at verse 21. And then look at what God does. He made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. They felt shame. They felt exposed. He protected them. The word there for the, the garment, the covering that he gives them, is a substantial garment. It's like the robe that would have been given uh, to Joseph. A, a full-on a, a covering. It would do a proper job. It protected them, even from the elements. But the symbol there, the picture that we're getting there is of God in his grace and in his mercy covering their shame, showing mercy to them. He didn't just smash them. Life was going to go on. He was still there with them. He covers them. He shows grace and he shows mercy. So in our culture where the answer is often to point at the finger and to expose shame in all kinds of other places because what that does is it deflects away from us and it actually often makes us feel a bit better about ourselves. When other people look really terrible, we look a bit better perhaps. God who is holy and perfectly righteous who made this wonderful creation and these wonderful people, the pinnacle of his creation, and saw this brokenness happen because of their disobedience, in his grace and in his mercy, provides a solution which points forward for years later for the plan that he, even at this point, knew he was going to bring into fulfillment, that a Savior was going to come who would provide full satisfaction for the problem that we face. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ who came, the Son of God, who came To do what? Let me just take a minute to say, what did Jesus do? God here provided a solution for the people. At the same time, the consequences were very real. They were banished from the garden. The situation that they'd lived in for for this time, these years that they'd been there, couldn't carry on. There were consequences for their sin. And from this moment, if you follow the trajectory of the Scriptures, and if you follow the trajectory of world history, you will know fine well that the life, the life and times of the human being have been very up and down since. And yet God had always planned to bring a Savior. And that Savior would himself live the perfect life, never going out with the boundaries that God here gives Perfectly obeying all the ways in which God himself decreed that they should live. And finally, himself taking the punishment that they and we deserved. God himself did that. Again, can you just see the magnitude of that where our tendency is often to want to take the blame and put it there and there and there. God himself, in the person of Jesus, came and did that. And uh, what that means is that we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, these words, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in other words, when people trust in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is that when God now sees those who trust in Jesus, he no longer sees the sin, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And what that means is that when God sees a person trusting in Jesus, they're clean and they are restored and they're brought again into relationship with God. And in the passage that we read in Romans, let me take you back to Romans. and I'm going to go to verse 15. It's put as a gift. The overwhelmingly merciful and gracious gift of God. The gift is not like the trespass. Again, Paul here is talking about the original trespass that Adam committed that brought sin into the world in such devastating terms. The gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? God's love and His mercy and His grace overflow in this act of redemption. So the Bible does say that we have a problem and the Bible assures us that there is a remedy. And I want to speak to you just now if you doubt the remedy. If you think any... Let me go back to the original illustration with the the virus, okay? How do we respond to threat? How do we respond to a problem? Well, we can be super complacent about something or we can panic, Let me just address that for a minute. Are you complacent? I hope not. I really hope not. I hope that when you look outside and within, you see that there's something going on there that makes us not right. There's something going on that makes us not right. We war with one another. We war with ourselves. God tells us that. He knows us. And he provides a solution. But I also want to say that if you're panicking, maybe you think, I have done too much. God won't listen to me. Maybe you're a Christian and you think, I've blown it this time. I've done too much. God won't listen to me this time. That's not true. God doesn't want you to think that. God will show you again, and I hope he does this morning, that his remedy is always his mercy and his grace in Jesus. So speak to him now and this morning. Talk to him because he knows your heart. He knows the brokenness. And he wants you to confess. He wants you to say, I'm broken. He knows you're broken. He's telling you you're broken. And he's telling you about the remedy, which is Jesus. The perfect love of Jesus. Remember the story to the kids. If you hear this this morning, he's speaking to you. He's coming after you. And he's telling you again and again of his gospel. The good news. The resolution that we need. So let me finish. Let me ask everybody... Again, using that slightly medical terminology, we talk sometimes about God as being the good physician, the one who has the perfectly accurate diagnosis of our hearts, and who has the perfect remedy that we need. But it's not just like a transaction that you go and get the remedy, take it away, get better. It's a relationship. When you trust in Him, your sins are forgiven. You're washed clean. Revelation talks about those who will stand before the throne of God, clothed in righteousness, clothed in white, washed, cleansed, glorified. You get forgiven. You get to stand in the presence of God and you get to stand in the presence of God. And that means now as well. That means you get to enter into a relationship with a God who would come from heaven to earth to put you right, to make you whole, to heal you, to again walk alongside you. Now, do you know him? Do you know the good physician who cares for your soul? I'm going to finish with a psalm. Sometimes we think that confessing isn't a good thing. It makes us feel a bit awkward. It makes us feel like God isn't going to listen. It makes us feel like it won't make any difference. In Psalm 32, David says these words. And he's somebody who knew about messing up. Badly. He says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. When you're forgiven, it's a blessing. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. It felt terrible. Then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. See that covering language again? I didn't try and cover it. I exposed it. That's healthy. If you're sick, you need to get to the root of what's wrong. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, do you know that forgiveness this morning? And if you're a believer and you've forgotten the magnitude that you are forgiven by God and washed clean, then please hear that again. Because, again, this brings us into the person of God himself. The psalmist concludes in verse 7. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. The God who forgives your sins doesn't do so grudgingly because he said he would, because it will solve a problem. He loves to forgive and to call you home into his family. And he will surround you with songs or shouts of deliverance. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Lord, we do ask for your grace and your mercy and your wisdom. So often we look off the path of your wisdom, but um, that gets us into all kinds of trouble. Forgive us this morning if we're proud and we think we don't need you. Help us if we just don't know you yet. May we know that even by praying, Lord God, help me to know you, you long to hear those prayers and you want to answer those prayers. Forgive our sins, Lord. And may this congregation of your people, and may all those who are here, even seeking you, know that to confess sin is to also know that our sins will be forgiven and to know that we enter into a relationship with the living God. So please, by your Holy Spirit, would you impress this upon our hearts and bless us. Amen.